Welcome to Four Thoughts of Our Founders, the podcast for the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. We are practitioners and scholars, administrators and researchers seeking to find like-minded individuals committed to creating rich cultural capital for the sole benefit of this sacred space. Most importantly, we at Health describe ourselves as zealots of the historically black college and university space. Got a really special guest here today. I'm Herman Felton flying solo. Young brother by the name of Dr. Barack Talley, who is currently the vice chancellor uh, for of enrollment management and student success at the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. Let's welcome him today. What's going on, brother? Thank you, for, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Felton. It's truly an honor to be on your podcast. Oh, man, it, it's um, it's an honor to have you. This is, um, I think you're probably number three in the series of Who's Next? Uh, our attempt to share with the globe the phenomenal lineup of young brothers and sisters who are laboring in the vineyard, who are um, you know, really committed to HBCU space um, and even those who are committed to higher education. Uh, we have a particular fancy for those who are in the space and of the space. So we're, we're happy to have you here. And on behalf of uh, the other folks, Melva uh, Williams, Alfred Anthony Pinkard and Greg Dees, uh, welcome to Four Thoughts of Our Founders. How, how are things going in your neck of the woods uh, this COVID-19 uh, pre-Easter Sunday? Things are going as well as uh, that can be expected, I, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, we're still trying to stay busy working. Uh, it's a beautiful day. Uh, unfortunately, we can't get out and enjoy much of it, but uh, just trying to stay safe and stay productive on the work front as well. Yes, sir. Um, let's get uh, let's get right at it. You know, this this is really about um, sharing with folks um, the the work and the trajectory of uh, folks who who look like them, who are laboring uh, in the same vineyard. Where's where's hometown for you? And, and uh, where'd you go to undergrad at, brother? Good deal. So grew up in a college town, um, Starkville, Mississippi, home to Mississippi State Bulldogs. And mom um, was a teacher and I did some teaching at the university. And uh, father was a factory worker and went to Rust College. Uh, Rust, uh, uh, admittedly, Rust wasn't my first choice. Played football in high school, thought I would be the first five foot seven NFL star. <laughs> and uh, my dreams were shattered with a knee injury. Oh, man. But I went to Rust College. Okay. Grew up as United Methodist and went to Rust. Yes, sir. Okay. What did you do at Rust? So majored in English and um, was very involved as a student leader, freshman class president, sophomore class president, junior class president, and even SGA president. Man, but you, um, you just, was you, very involved. You just wanted to be um, working in the government, huh? <laughs> <laughs> was very involved. I um uh, Dr. Beckley, I met him on my first day. My pastor and Dr. Beckley was the president of Russell Roommate. This is okay. my friends from college. Wow. And uh, Dr. Dr. Beckley said, uh, um, when I was doing my college tour, that if you come here, I'll take care of you. And uh, he really uh, was a mentor throughout my undergraduate matriculation and even to this day. Oh, that's cool. I, I think that's something uh, that we have in common. Number one, I was the SGA president as well at uh, a fellow UNCF member school, Edward Waters College. Uh, and you also worked um for your president mm -hmm. so twice twice 
So yes, um, when you say twice, what do you mean by that? You Did you attend another uh, institution where you worked for another president or are you saying you worked for Beckley twice? So um, I've worked at three HBCs, but mm -hmm. I worked for Dr. Beckley twice. Uh, mm -hmm. My senior year, he, he knew I wanted to be in higher education. And uh, throughout undergrad, he allowed me to intern with Dr. Cynthia Bond Hobson with the Black College Fund. Okay. And uh, my senior year, he made me uh, an assistant dorm director uh, just to see if uh, higher education or student life was really what I wanted to do. And mm -hmm. uh, at 24, when I finished my master's degree, he allowed me to come back as a cabinet member. Oh, cool. What did you do then? So I came back as uh, Dean of Enrollment Management and um, had the opportunity to work with uh, career services, financial aid, uh, admissions and recruitment, and we were able to grow our enrollment a little bit. I uh, got the default rate down from north of 30% down to about 21% uh, in our first year and received north of a uh, million dollars in grants for, for career services as well. So, so we did a lot of good work. So before we get into uh, too much of uh, the work that you did, I wanna round out mm -hmm. this conversation with um, your graduate work. You were at sure. Alabama A&M and you got a master's in urban and regional planning. What 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 in the hell is all that? <laughs> so, um, I uh, got a master's degree in urban planning from Alabama A&M University. And urban planners are really city planners. So we talked about uh, a lot of red zone, uh, redlining. Uh, we talked about city codes and how they can be disproportionately uh, against African-Americans and other minority communities mm -hmm. and how to really lay out cities. And uh, But while there, again, had the opportunity to serve as the director of marketing and recruitment for the graduate school at Alabama A&M for about two and a half years. Okay, cool. So you were employed while mm -hmm. you were you were on the grind. Absolutely. Um, yes, and sir. so what, what pushed you to go back and get um, uh, some more um, class time? Uh, so um, Dr. Beckley told me, uh, hey, this is a higher education is a credential business. And uh, if you want to stay in it, you have to have the credentials. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I had to go get the master's degree. And when I worked for him, he encouraged me to get the PhD as well. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you cut your teeth in the dorms or residence mm -hmm. hall. I know you uh, yes, student affairs people don't like to call them dorms. <laughs> uh, but the, um, but so so you started in residence life, res life, and and found, how, how did you know that student affairs was the place for you? Why not academics? Why not institutional advancement? Why not administrate? Like why, what, what about student affairs attracted you to that space? I think being a student, being completely honest with you, I really didn't understand the, I, I saw professors as just folks who taught. I didn't really understand the, the advancement piece of it, but I knew I wanted to be in higher education and without having uh, a degree and um, being relatively young, or really young, that was the first role that came open. And I, I, I took whatever I could so that I could learn. And uh, it wasn't about being employed. It was more so about getting into the door. I see. And so uh, so I really loved it. And uh, I guess it was an opportunity for me to uh, work with students and to try to make their experience a little bit better as well. Um, th that's that's um, pretty. I, I think you are you were ahead and are in a lot of ways ahead of, of, of the game in that a lot of us take securitist routes to uh, our final resting place if you will um in knowing what it is that we want to do so you i i think you're you're an anomaly in in that sense in that you kind of got in pretty quickly and knew 
uh, what your track was. Uh, what's the favorite, what's your favorite component of the student affairs piece? That's a tough question, Doc, <laughs> uh, because they all are hand in hand with each other. But I think I love uh, enrollment management. Enrollment managers have the opportunity to, to really uh, uh, have their footprint or their handprint on the uh, on the the shape and the way that the university or the institution will look. You're um, you're the first introduction to selling the college, but also getting students to fall madly in love with the institution as well. So I, I really appreciate the enrollment management piece of it, um, and I guess secondly would be the student engagement side of it, ensuring that those students are uh, are happy and engaged and excited about learning because they spend the majority of their time outside of the classroom. That that's um certainly uh, a pretty cool um, understanding of, of what, what happens on a campus and why I, I can see why the enrollment management piece would be important. I, I really can because um, in the limited time that I've um, worked with ad, um, admissions, um, I've really got a chance to really understand well, first, as a Marine recruiter, um, while I was in the Marine Corps, I understood that um, one of our drill instructors said, and I'll never forget this, you will recruit yourself into the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand, but but he later told me that you, you'll find people who are like you in some way, some shape, some fashion. Um, and, uh, but more importantly, you have to love what it is that you're getting people to invest their lives into. And so mm-hmm. I, I, being passionate about every institution that I've worked at, um, really passionate about them. I understand why it would be one of the favorite spaces to really go out and talk about a place that could have impacted your life in ways that you, you know, couldn't really understand. And being, being able to sell that, um, is, uh, really intoxicating, I think in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And there's a science to it as well, I believe, but it's also relatively hard for those who may not be in enrollment management to understand how tough it can be to, uh, <laughs> to, to sell the college, uh, higher education now is more competitive than ever before. Um, you have unemployment rate at an all-time low. Uh, so those who are finishing high school can go out and get a job that pays relatively well without pursuing any additional education. Uh, you have for-profit institutions. You have PWIs, HBCUs. So it's more competitive. You know, all of this is combined with a uh, a lower gradu- uh, a lower rate of high school graduates. Right. So um, so it's more competitive now than ever before. And, and, uh, and I, I, I'm sorry, I, I would add to that, Barack, I would add to mm-hmm. to that amenities and the Absolutely. desire to have amenities. And so when you when you're at an institution that does not have um, as more amenities than your competitors, that, too, makes this work uh, in admissions or enrollment management uh, pretty, um, pretty taxing. Absolutely, especially when you throw a cost factor in there as well. Um, you, you know, you're looking at a uh, institution that may not have as many amenities, but may uh, the, the cost may be right in line with another institution that has the Chick-fil-A on campus, the brand new residential hall, things of that nature. What is what is students saying now? Like, what 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 is it that you know from your experience, uh, both as a, an admissions officer, a director of, of recruiting? 
uh, all the spaces, what thread do you see with uh, students while they're making their choices now? A thread that was common uh, when you first started and that still remains. W tell me one of the threads, um, if you will. I think students more more now than ever before are looking for fit. Where can they go and be happy, get a quality education? Uh, and uh, But everyone wants to go to college for free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the funny thing that uh, I, I think sometimes when we talk about student debt, that we look at it as a uh, as something negative opposed to uh, financing education. Uh, you go out and buy a $300,000 house, you don't necessarily see it as debt because you're looking at it as an investment. And higher education can pay off more dividends than any other investment uh, that we can uh, readily put our hands on. Uh, so I, I think the debt question is uh, one that comes up with most students outside of finding a person they can fit in as well. You know, you know, I, I'm on this quest to get people to reimagine that the optics of uh, debt, college debt. And, and here's why. You, you touched on the fact that when people purchase a home, they see that as an investment and they do so because we know that it is going to appreciate. Right. And mm -hmm. but when we buy cars, we know that they're not going to appreciate. We, we buy purses. We buy suits. We buy a ton of different things with maybe not the cognitive understanding that um, it is going to depreciate, but we don't employ the same logic behind making an investment in ourselves, right? When you graduate, the 30,000 that you have or the 30,000 that it costs you to get that education, your career should be as such that it is a, huge upside every year and what and whether that be employed or that means moving up the track you have dividends on that 30,000 or 20,000 or 50,000 every year there's a dividend Absolutely. on that and so I, I think we have to really reframe the narrative and get people to really understand that this is really an investment. Stop saying that it's debt. It's debt. Mm -hmm. If you come to school, stop out. And now you mm -hmm. got that ball and chain around your neck or you come mm -hmm. to school and mass this, um, this, you know, this bill and you find yourself underemployed, right? Because you didn't do the best that you could do. I think personal accountability has to play into mm -hmm. this space and I think that's the first step in getting people to understand that, yo, this is this is really an investment in myself. I'm gambling on myself because I know I'm going to flip this 30 grand that it cost me to get this education uh, into something, you know, magnanimous. Absolutely. I'm glad that you said the, the point that you have to invest in it. There's um, outside of the financial investment, you have to go to conferences. You have to read outside of class. You have to want to uh, uh, learn and listen to podcasts. There's more information now that's um, more readily available than ever before. And I, I think that um, oftentimes getting students to understand that if you want to be the best, if you want to uh, be able to achieve some of those, you know, the nice home, the nice cars, all of those things, that there's an investment outside of just going to class that has to be uh, uh, taken into account as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the student affairs piece comes into play. 
how do you get students uh, excited about going to mock trial? How do you get students excited about debate competitions? And, 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 and knowing that those skills that they're acquiring are transferable, uh, you know, as it relates to their career, whether it be in graduate school or in the workforce. Absolutely, sir. Yeah, being being strategic. Um, so, so let's get into COVID nineteen a little bit here. Uh, obviously, you uh, are in a business like like mine. My track was institutional advancement, and the reason I loved it was because numbers were all that mattered. Mm-hmm. Period. Um, and enrollment mm-hmm. management is the same thing. I I worked for a baby boomer who did not care what <laughs> variables were in place. He mm-hmm. coined, I don't know if it was his, but I heard it all the time. There are 1,001 legitimate excuses for failure. It's mm-hmm. still failure. Like he Absolutely. was not trying to hear it, right? And so you've already had the nuance of uh, competition competition with PWIs, places that might be more affordable, places that might be more attractive. Now you throw COVID in the mix and you still have a uh, enrollment metrics that you have to meet. Talk to me about that, man. Where, where, where are we now as an enrollment manager? What, what's on your mind? What's, what's going on in the war rooms now at, um, at Arkansas uh, Pine Bluff. It's a really uh, scary time, uh, but it's also an opportunity as well. And that's what um, I've tried to relay to my team that we are uh, planted and not buried under this COVID-19. Uh, it is scary, of course, because we don't know what will happen. We don't know when when, uh, when this will end. But we've tried to think, uh, I guess, a little bit more strategically about what we're doing. Uh, we, we're doing a lot of fairs online. Uh, we're following students uh, electronically through social media, uh, doing lots of follow-up. And the interesting thing is we often talk about how much we follow up and how much we touch a student, how many times we touch a student. But now we can really see if we're doing those things or not. Um, and, and I guess as a young professional, um, I, I've not struggled, but um, really been really uh, interested in how do we keep our team inspired when we really can't see each other as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when we really can't touch each other and touch our students as much. So we've had to think about things a little bit differently while being empathetic with our staff members and with our student body as well. Uh, but but it's scary as we look at students who may transfer and want to go to colleges back home that are closer to home. Uh, but we're positioning ourselves so that uh, we put in a, uh, a scholarship uh, for transfer students now for those who may want to come back to Arkansas, mm-hmm. who may have gone to college other places. Uh, so we're trying to think uh, a little smarter about it. And I think that once all this blows over, that we will be in a better position from a strategic uh, standpoint that we can uh, really uh, attract and engage students a little bit differently opposed to traveling as much as opposed to uh, doing some of the traditional things that take place in enrollment management. You know, there there are a lot of conversations, CIC, UNCF, ICUT, UMC, uh, NASCOM, all these 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 pockets um, are concerned about students not coming back. I'm just mm-hmm. not. I really am not. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why. They didn't want to leave. 
Um, That's right. Most most of our students did not want to leave. Um, and it's a place where even after this disaster will will breed uh, familiarity. Um, it will breed um, brotherhood and sisterhood even more than it did before, I believe. Um, and I, I, I also believe that, you know, everybody is in the same boat. And so mm-hmm. people thinking that one, a, a student is going to leave you. Well, they didn't leave because they were mad or they were angry mm-hmm. or upset. We left because of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, I just I'm I, and it may be the pure optimist in me, but I just don't think that if you do one of two things, are you going to lose some students? Yes. Mass exodus. No, I do not believe that. Um, but I also I, I concur with you. The challenge that I have um, in my day job is worrying about how do I keep my staff engaged as well? So, but I, you know, in a weird way, man, people seem to be working more now than they were when they were actually in, in the space. Right. I think so. (laughs) I think it's hard to turn it off when you, when your home is your office, because now you're at work all of the time. (laughs) Well, if you, especially if you're in a place like, like at Wiley college, you know, my office is probably 30 feet away from my house um, or the college's home. And so I like it. I, it's it's been it's it's provided a um a sense of normalcy for me. Like I get up, I get dressed some days, and put on a suit and come into office, and nobody else is on campus, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm able to write. I'm able to be innovative and creative and use the muscles that you normally don't get to while you're in crises, even though we're in crises. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's pretty cool. So I I think uh, the things that you're doing are pretty cool and will yield a, a, a really good, um, you know, crop for you. Do you like the pressure of, of knowing that you have to respond every year in a way that is, um, held accountable by numbers and numbers only? I do. Um, I do. I, I, this is a metrics build, uh, business and either you perform or you don't. And uh, I think it keeps me uh, and our team on our toes at all times. Mm-hmm. You have to, um, I, I tell I tell our team all the time that I would much rather uh, not get our numbers and know that we did everything that we could do and the power of getting those numbers and then fail opposed to sitting on our laurels and then not get our numbers. So I, I think that's where that level of being inspired uh, is and um, I like that pressure, um, knowing that uh, really the institution is relying on you to do your job. We can't have a day off or, or a bad day or a bad year, regardless of what is second place outside of uh, outside of the university. And one thing that Dr. Bethley that I really appreciate you to share is that um, in higher education or in enrollment management, you eat what you kill. If you don't kill anything, you don't eat anything. So we have to go out and be hunters every day. Man, those old heads have the best sayings, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Teaching through those parables. <laughs> yeah. So, so but I mean, that's so true, though. You know, um, if you're enrollment dependent or tuition driven, however you want to say it, um, everything starts and ends with the conversation, what's FTE, period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, I, like, I like the pressure, uh, the accountability, rather, of um 
of numbers and 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 a goal. Let me ask you uh, another question here. Um, you are a, a recruiter by trade. Do you find value, or what would you say the most one of one of the most valuable skill sets? Um, that a recruiter uh, could have or an admissions officer uh, could have in their toolbox? Listening. Boom. Okay. Listening. Okay. And we didn't rehearse this. Um, <laughs> so that skill set, which I believe is the most critical, how has that helped you climb the ladder? I think you have to listen to uh, every stakeholder on campus, the students, the faculty, the staff, the administration, even the potential students. And I think once you listen and understand um, what's going well, what's not going well, that you can uh, that you can understand it and share that with potential students. Mm-hmm. I think that you can tailor your uh, your sales pitch, but you can also tailor your work around it as well. And uh, even uh, when they come, I took a, I did a seminar early on in my career uh, titled "How to Manage Your Manager." And uh, it's centered around listening, mm-hmm. listening to what your manager needs. What uh, Are they data-driven? If they're data-driven, then give them the data that they want before they ask for it. Right. And that way, uh, not only do you seem more productive, but you are being more productive. And uh, so I think listening is a transferable skill across the campus. But, uh, but it has also helped me to uh, be able to work with my managers and have relatively good relationships with my supervisors as well. So, so, so we're talking about leading up. Right. Managing mm-hmm. up and and listening. How did that help you manage up with your former uh, boss? How, how did you what what was that relationship like? I love working for um, Dr. Beckley. The, the funny thing is, <laughs> uh, I didn't re- realize, I guess, how uh, how uh, focused uh, he is as a student uh, uh, until I started working for him. As a student, he was this uh, lovable guy, and as an employee, he was as well. Mm-hmm. But as a student, uh, I guess as an employee, you got a chance to see the business side of it. Oh yeah, it, hit, and, it, um, it hits a little different. Those relationships <laughs> hit a little different does. when you're when you're on the payroll. It does, and being held accountable. I think the first time I remember him holding me accountable for something, I was thinking, "Man, you're my mentor." Right? How you know? How do you trust that? <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen, I remember. I remember. So I, I, I shared the same. You know, I was a student with Jimmy Jenkins and mentor, and then I was an employee. And I remember one of the first assignments I had. He had me write something. I can't remember what it was, but I remember those red marks that came back and how disappointed I was. Like, I, you know, I felt like Mm -hmm. I was not only in the principal's office, but like, I Mm -hmm. I mean, he just, he said, look, don't ever bring me Mm -hmm. anything else like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. not a English guy and I'm not a writer, but man, Mm -hmm. when I tell you I would labor over anything, whether it was a text message, an email, a mm-hmm. memo, internal Absolutely. or external. Like I just, the, the, the standard that they created and commanded without even saying a word was just something that I'll, I'll never forget. And I'm, and I'm grateful for. You have to be in the pursuit of excellence at all times. And um, I think that's what Dr. Beckley did for me. He held me uh, to a higher standard. And I think because I uh, because he was my mentor and, and in many respects a father figure uh, to me that I did not want to disappoint him. Yeah, I did not want to do something where 
he had to be responsible or to answer to a mistake that I made. Um, this, this is this is where fit, you know, really um, is is sort of nebulous and is tucked into the the importance of. Um, moving from place to place. Like I want to be at a place where I can be inspired by a person mm-hmm. and not want to disappoint them. Would, would you, would you agree mm-hmm. like that, that that's a part, a part of uh fit or should be factored Ab- in fit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, anyone can do a job, uh, but, but are you, are you doing that job well? And much of that goes to the culture, to the fit. Do you fit into the system? Do you fit into what we're doing, what we've built here? Uh, because ultimately the institution is bigger than one person. Mm. Indeed. So you're you're a millennial and millennials are, you know, lazy. That's the bad rap. That's what folks say. <laughs> right. But that's what people say. Not me. I'm, I'm just, you know, generally speaking. Um, sure. And you talk about listening. And they also say millennials are entitled. Right. When you mm. talk about listening. How important is it or how difficult is it because you all are, in, you know, really bright um, and know everything? How important <laughs> is it to listen uh, when you're being led and how do you understand when it's time for you to add or quote unquote pushback or challenge or when it's time to just shut up and, and listen and be led? Sure. I think um, when, when you begin to listen, listening is more than just what you hear. It's what you see. It's what you feel in the room. And uh, as you were asking that question, I really thought about uh, learning how to be a thermometer and how to be a, uh, uh, and how to be a thermostat. And uh, I think there are times where you have to just gauge the level of the room. Uh, there are times you have to listen to those things in the room and uh, read people's body, uh, body language. But I think there are also times when you have the uh, opportunity to interject your thoughts and to sometimes uh, level, uh, increase the uh, temperature in the room and sometimes lower the temperature in the room as well. And that's, uh, a, but, and that's the thermostat. I, 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 I th- yes, that's sir. a brilliant um, analogy that you're using, man. Like, let, let, let say, say that one more time. I, I want you to say, you know, thermometer, what that means, and thermostat, what that means. Would you, would you do that one more time for me? So a thermometer just gauges the temperature, but a thermostat sets the temperature. And I think that's what listening allows you to do. Uh, it allows you to learn when you need to just gauge the temperature of the room, but also when you need to set the temperature of the room. And um, I think that's what I learned uh, in my, uh, or have learned, in our, and it's still learning. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning that uh, to, to a certain degree. And the challenge of being a millennial is you have access to so much information. And uh, I remember going into a meeting saying, well, I've Googled this, it's showing me this. And um, I'm, I'm not sure if it was Dr. Beckley or Dr. Newkirk, who was my supervisor at the time at uh, A&M. Is that Van Newkirk? <laughs> Van Newkirk. Oh, wow. Sir. Okay, and, okay. And, and one of them told me, damn what Google says. <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm telling you through my experience what's going uh, what, what, yes, what on, what we need to do. Yes, sir. And, and I appreciate it, sir. Yes, mm-hmm. sir. <laughs> Did, could, could you also in being that that uh that um thermometer couldn't you also determine where 
uh, and when it was time for you to add something or, or to just say yes, sir, and keep the party moving? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Um, and I think that's the, uh, that's the skill. That's, the, uh, that's one of the most invaluable skill. skill sets, right? Absolutely. And yeah. sometimes you have to come back and add your thoughts. Right. Um, um, one of the things I learned early on is even when you disagree with your president or supervisor, maybe you shouldn't disagree publicly. <laughs> maybe you need to come back later a day or so. So, and say, hey, so I, I, I can't, this conversation. so I can't tell you what's on my mind right now. Not at all times, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating, man, to watch people do that, and and they're so tone deaf, right? That mm-hmm. uh, people oftentimes you hear this rage about HBCUs being patriarchal, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I get it, um, but but deference and respect have nothing to mm-hmm. do with you wanting to speak your mind and wanting to speak your mind whenever you want to. The, it, it, Absolutely. The, the two just don't go together. And oftentimes I find people who who I, I have, you know, I'm very fond of and, and they're stuck and they don't know why they're stuck. And and mm-hmm. it's because they're not hearing what people are, are, are telling them and or understanding that they're shooting themselves in the foot simply because in some instances they don't know how to be a thermostat or a thermometer. And, and I, I think that's so powerful, man. I hate to keep going back to that, but it, for me, learning my boss, learning who he was, knowing that I'm not sending him an email because he's not mm-hmm. going to read it the way <laughs> I need him to. I'm going Absolutely. to I'm going to send him a follow up memo after mm-hmm. I have a conversation with him. I know without question that is why I was uh, as successful with my pred- my my boss Jimmy Jenkins because I understood how he moved and mm-hmm. that was something that I took pride in waking up every day is just trying to figure out how do I how do I figure out how this guy moves right I knew mm-hmm. at the CIAA he was going to overpromise tickets and rooms every year <laughs> every year so I would fight with the CFO Roger McLean, bless his, uh, you know, bless his soul. He he died uh, several years ago, and he taught me everything that I know from a um, financial space in the financial space, financial affairs. We would fight every year at homecoming and at um, during the CIAA because I would always want an extra portion of rooms and an extra portion mm-hmm. of tickets, and invariably after homecoming or the CIAA was over with, he'd be like, man, I'm glad you did that. But he would give Mm -hmm. me hail trying to get it because Mm -hmm. I knew when Jimmy Jenkins called me and said, "Uh, Dr. Felton, I need some tickets. My, Mm -hmm. I was not going to say, I don't have any, sir, or I can't find any. What you need, sir? How many you need? Mm -hmm. So after the first year of failing that, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And even though he understood, like nobody had any tickets, I took it upon myself in understanding who he was. It wasn't his job to worry about those small details. That was my job. Mm-hmm. That was my and, job. And you know, you know, Dr. Phillips, and when, when you mentioned young being a millennial, I think that's what, um, another challenge that we've been faced with because of, I guess, the entitlement that sometimes we see things like that as sucking up when it's really not. Mm-mm. What it is, uh, is taking care of your supervisor. Yeah. And um, it's taking care of the president. And when you do those things, 
um, because you will screw up. <laughs> uh, when, when, when you do those things, when you screw up, things like that will uh, take its place. Balance itself say, out. Well, absolutely, absolutely. So you have to go above and beyond yeah. on those little things that matter. I, you know what I wanted, Barack? I wanted that phone call. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the person that my boss called when he couldn't get something done. I wanted and to be he, the and he knows first. That you'll take care that's of it. right. I wanted to be the first person he called, and I enjoyed that. I loved it. You can call me whatever you want to, right? I'm gonna come up, work, do my job, and I'm gonna serve uh, the best I could. Um, I remember <laughs> leaving Murray State, taking a pay cut to go to Livingstone. And one of the first assignments I had was to do some domestic at work. And I'm thinking to myself, mm-hmm. yo, I got a law degree. I ain't around here going to get mm-hmm. nobody's cleaners or going to pick up no coffee mm-hmm. on the way in. Man. I don't leave Murray State for this. <laughs> right. But you know what? I had like an epiphany like really quick. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy. Yeah, no, he, this this guy cares about me. So yeah, let mm-hmm. me let me. It, 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 how much coffee and cream do you want, sir? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and, and mm-hmm. never look back from that point because I understood um, acutely that it was about service, and this was not mm-hmm. about being an indentured servant, right? And and he was more than just a president to you. He was someone who he was uh, who you invested in, and he invested in you as That's well. Right. That's right. You know what? That's a really good point because oftentimes we see one side. We see what we what we would say what people are doing for us, but we don't mm-hmm. equate into the fact that we don't put into the factor um, what we've done for them as well. You know, uh, Dr. Fletcher, when I was at rest, I understood the challenge that Dr. Beckley had by not challenge, but appointing someone uh, as a uh, executive officer at twenty four twenty five. I know he never shared that with me, but I know he may have received some negative backlash from faculty members or staff members who may have wanted that position. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew that I had to do those little things to make him happy, not only professionally, but personally as well, because I wanted to, him to know that you did not make the wrong decision, Man. that you made the right decision by giving me this opportunity. So it was a personal commitment to not only ensure that our numbers were okay, to not only ensure that we were processing aid and lowering our default rate and doing all of those other things, but to ensure that my supervisor was comfortable and to know that uh, when you give me a task, I can do it. I remember when I first got married, uh, Dr. Beckley may have asked me to go somewhere, Jackson or somewhere to uh, speak at a conference or to get a check. And it may have been a day or two before the actual event. And my wife said, well, look, I had plans. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, hey, you know, we need to reschedule those plans because I've made a commitment to go here. <laughs> and, and I have to be on time, dressed, and ready to go. Yes. And she didn't understand that initially. Yeah. But now she does. Yeah. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I think you might be the first person that I've talked to that was in that very same boat that understands the pressure of working for your undergraduate president. Mm-hmm. That is rare, but I I understand all too well how every day you walked around with the label of Beckley's boy as I was Jenkins mm-hmm. boy. Like no matter what I did, the, the reason I got the job was because I was Jenkins boy. 
and, and look, it didn't help me because I started wearing cowboy boots. I wanted to be like Dr. Beckley. Oh, so Lord, bad. Jesus Christ. <laughs> don't tell me you cheap like Dr. Beckley, too. Please don't tell me that. No, I'm a, no, no okay. I'm not. <laughs> All right, thank you. Shout out to but, Dr. But Beckley. Love, 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 love that dude. Really good guy. Uh-huh. If you ever get a chance to meet Dr. Beckley, for those of you who are listening, um, I encourage you to do so. Go sit up. He is a library. Um, and when you want to talk about fiscally prudent, this dude is one who can get a dollar out of a dime. He really mm-hmm. is. Um, he would tell us, um, if you can find a way to spend a dollar more than once without going to jail, then then, uh, then let me know. That's right. But if you can't, then if you can't, then let me run the college. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, so there, there are unique challenges that come with that. And I, you know, I agree with the whole notion of wanting to do better. I think there are many people out there who want to do better for whoever they work for. But there's just a little Absolutely. something special about working for a person who you who, who you attribute, um, you know, your success to. And I, I don't know if if Dr. Beckley was like Dr. Jenkins, Dr. Dr. Jenkins didn't necessarily sit down and say, yo, this is um, this is how I'm going to get you to the presidency. But what he did do was give me every tool that I needed to be successful. He exposed me to, you know, student affairs. He made Roger McClain teach me everything that he knew in business and finance and how to be prepared for audits and how to manage cash flow when you don't have cash. Like he, he gave me so much without saying, this is how we're going to get you where you need to go. And I think it's also important for us to, and I want to get your thoughts on this, how important it is for us to reshape and reframe and reimagine our desires based on what we think they should look like. Like I, I thought I needed him to sit down with me every three months and say, this is where you're going. This is, Mm -hmm. this is how you're going to get there. But his way of doing things turned out to be more beneficial. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted, but I appreciate it. How do you, how how important is it for us to really understand uh, those of us whom we place our faith in uh, really understanding who they are and how they tick and how, how they move. I think it's uh, very important. And um, I agree with you. I guess uh, going back to being a millennial, I would always expect and want feedback on every little thing from Dr. Ben. <laughs> you know, hey, Doc, what are your thoughts about this? I need this project. What are your thoughts about this? And eventually he told me, if I didn't call you, that means nothing was wrong with it. <laughs> so, so, so I, <laughs> no news is good news, brother. <laughs> hey, Barack, let me ask you this question: Did you ever yes, take? Did you ever like inhale uh, whenever you saw his name pop up? Like, oh lord, yes, I don't on know the what this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, but, but the good thing is, I think we learned each other. And there were sometimes when he would call or just text and say, "Well, how you doing, my boy?" And mm. I appreciated those yeah. things as well. Yeah. 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 Dr. Jenkins was really cool. Um, he had his own way of letting me know that I was doing a good job. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes he would say, you know, I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing. Good job. For me, mm-hmm. it was that extra phone call. It was, it mm-hmm. wasn't even about how you doing. It was, Hey, look, I need you to do this. That for mm-hmm. me meant what I did the last time 
was right. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, we have to figure out how we find um, satisfaction and gratification from what we do for others um, if it doesn't look like how we need it. Does that does that make sense? I think it does, but I also think we have to stop looking for uh, validation on everything as well. Mm. Um, stop looking for it. Um, I, I think if, I think your job, or not not you as president, but uh, the job as employees are to, to come and try to make a uh, try to uh, get a home run every time. Mm -hmm. I'm not swinging just to get on base. I'm swinging to make a grand slam every time. Yeah, uh, because not only will I score, but those around me will score. As well. Everybody else, everybody else Absolutely. does. Yeah, no, I I think yes, that's sir. um I, I think that's I think that's pretty solid. What what were some of the challenges? Like you you've had um obviously ageism was something mm -hmm. that you experienced. What what were some of those challenges being a young administrator? What were some of the challenges that you faced? I I think uh the, the initial challenge was uh being an administrator and executive level administrator where many of my colleagues or those on my staff had just saw me two or three years prior being a student. Mm. So <laughs> making that transition to now I need you to respect me as your supervisor or as your colleague, opposed to now seeing me as a student, I, I pledge Omega, walking around with my gold boots on on campus. Mm -hmm. Now I need you to see me as an administrator. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but what I realized is it just wasn't a challenge for them but it was a challenge for me as well. Heck yeah. So I could not uh, make the little mistakes that, that I possibly could make if I was an outsider mm -hmm. or, or someone coming to the institution. I couldn't make the mistakes that someone who may be a little bit older than I am uh, um, uh, who uh, make. So uh, it was a, I guess as you spoke to a level of, uh, it was a challenge that I had to be on at all times. Uh, and still to this day, um, I, I'm serving my second executive level role at UAPB, which is a, Relatively larger institution, mm -hmm. and um, have a great supervisor in Chancellor Alexander there, like you has a PhD in uh, and JD. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, because of my age, I know that I have to be twice as good as everybody else, and that's not from an arrogant standpoint, but from a point of I want to be the very best every day. Yeah, no, there, I don't want to second guess. There's nothing wrong age. with that. Now, so you, we've mm -hmm. covered on this call a variety of different things, but ones that stick out to me: managing up. And now you just broached the the, the, the topic of multi generational leadership, mm -hmm. right? That that's a challenge when it is. when you may be in the middle of the pack or the bottom third of the pack in terms of age, and you've got to manage folks under you at your level, a step above and two steps above, meaning generations. That, what what are some of the challenges with multi generational leadership, and what what advice would you give? Rather, let's 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 be positive. What advice would you give folks um, who are leading multi generational workforces? I think one is uh, not just to be in this space, but not, not just to show up in the space, but to be in the space. And what I mean by that is. Uh, to learn everything that you can from everyone on campus. There are many opportunities where I'll sit down with our custodial staff and take them lunch and just to uh, get their thoughts about different things. And it may not be a decision that we're making on campus, but uh, it may uh, align more so with uh, the, uh, the wisdom that they have. Um, I, 
I, I think having that multi-generational uh, uh, level of understanding where I can, uh, there, there, there are things that someone who may be a little older than I am can joke about where I cannot joke about those things. Uh, I, I have to be careful about the number of students who are in my office because I don't want someone to say, hey, we're just hanging out in our office, uh, opposed to really building those relationships with students. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's being on and on the time. But Dr. Felton, one of the things I've really found value in is being able to go and sit down with VPs of other areas, uh, the VP for development, the VP for uh, uh, academic affairs. See, now you're, talk, now, now you're talking about consensus building. Now, uh-huh. now you're uh-huh. talking about consensus building. So I, I think those those points you made as it relates to uh, multi-generation are really good. But let's talk about consensus building. Like, let's juxtapose, well, rather not do that, but let me, let me ask you this. How did you feel um, co- consensus building was was it was it intentional at your previous institution? Were you a part of that? And and what exactly is consensus building? So I, I think um, yes and no uh, in my previous institution. I think um, part of it was uh, I had some really great colleagues who knew my aspirations and they would send me documents. They would give me books and say, hey, read this, learn this. And um I think uh, the consensus comes from being uh, from being consistent, uh, allowing them to see who you are, and to uh, uh, and, and allowing to uh, allow yourself to be consistently uh, your very best every day. Yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, consistent. Uh, uh, I think consensus building is when you are uh, when you're showing up in the space. I know I've said that before. But um, and, and when you are allowing yourself to go back and listen to your colleagues and to have input on things, one of the things I learned very, on, uh, very early on is that enrollment management or whatever area touches the other areas as well. So when you're uh, offering advice or offering changes to policy, mm-hmm. you have to think about how it may impact, Absolutely. how lowering the GPA may impact academic affairs. Mm-hmm. So before I would go into cabinet meeting, I would talk to our provost. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah. I'm going to present this. How do you feel about this? How yes. will it impact? How will faculty morale go down or increase Man, if we are do these things? Wise beyond um, your so years, I think that's my that. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I think you've said before, Dr. Felton, you want to count your horses before they leave the barn. Absolutely. You better you 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 had better be able to count horses. If you don't understand a balance sheet, you better know how to count some horses. And I mean, <laughs> being able to build consensus and board votes uh, in particular. Uh-huh. But but I want to go back to consensus building and how I failed at that. Even after being in the Marine Corps and understanding how important it is for all parties and all hearts to be of one mind and one set and one space. Like we, that's what we ate, slept and breathed uh, in the Marine Corps. And I remember being appointed chief operating officer and senior vice president at Livingstone College. And it came out of the blue. I wasn't interviewing for it. I guess I was working every day, but had no idea that uh, my boss was getting ready to move in that direction. So he comes in the cabinet, which is a fairly, you know, innocuous day, nothing different, nothing remarkable. We got the, you know, the call from his assistant, as we normally do. And he made the announcement and I'm floored and flabbergasted. And then that quickly turned into anger. I was mad that none of my peers who were my peers just 20 minutes ago said congratulations. I I thought like, like. 
like mm-hmm. I would have been happy for anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. And then they weren't happy for me. And then I think it was me who changed and not them after that. And I did so because I failed to understand the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. And in this mm-hmm. instance, I didn't need to be anything more. I didn't need to be the senior vice president. I didn't need to be the chief operator. I didn't need to say I was that person. And so I started because I had the day-to-day operations and I was now running cabinet meetings. I ran cabinet meetings like I was Jimmy Jenkins and I wasn't Jimmy Jenkins. And it was fracturing the relationships, which made um, us not move in an optimal fashion. And I Ooh. had an epiphany one day, um, because I'm, I'd like to think of myself as a highly reflective person and I walk, um, you know, a great deal. And that's where I get to be innovative and think of different things and think through. Um, and typically I'm, I'm mapping out my day at the beginning and in the evening I'm going through the day. And so I, it, it, it dawned on me that I was doing everything wrong. And so I had to go back, Barack, and simply start engaging my colleagues, having conversations with them before we got into the cabinet meetings. And it was really the cabinet meetings were rehearsal because we'd already talked about what we wanted to do. But they saw in me someone who wanted to build consensus rather than lead with an iron hand just because I could. I had the right to do that, but that didn't make it right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I guess the thing that I've learned, um, I guess piggybacking on what you said is that people support what they help create. And um, I, I think that that was my problem, or I guess in some cases may still be a problem for me. Is I think I have all the great ideas. I think I can do all of these things. I can be the Superman, but I've had, I had to learn early on that when you put people uh, in a position to help create and be a part of the thought process and to work with them outside of cabinet and those formal areas, that they will support your ideas, even if they may not be 100% tight. Mm-hmm. Got some buy-in, some ownership in that piece. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And uh, you, you, you just can't carry it out by yourself either. So well, that's the other piece. <laughs> yes, sir. You, you really can't. You can't do everything by yourself. Mm-hmm. How, how difficult was it for you to leave... Um, uh, rust to go to UAPB. I cried, Doctor Felton, on my last day. <laughs> Are you serious? I li- I, I literally cried um, because um, I felt like, uh, and this is in no way of disrespect, but I felt like um, that I needed, uh, even though I challenged at Rust, mm-hmm. that I wanted a new challenge. Yeah. So I wanted uh, an opportunity to continue to grow and, and to sharpen some of those uh, yeah. things that I needed to. Uh, Improve upon, mm-hmm. so that's why um, I uh, explored a new opportunity. But I cried because Russ is the place where I became a man. Mm-hmm. I was leaving my mentor. Mm-hmm. I was leaving someone who I knew cared about me more than just as a vice president, but somebody who cared about me as a human being. And I'm so grateful that um, we developed a relationship outside of work because now I can call him and say, "Hey, Doc, what are your thoughts about this?" Yeah. And he will give me his honest uh, thoughts. So Isn't that I the think best, because man? Uh, we took care of the relationship, yes, sir. But it's because of those things that you've spoken about that you have to take care of the relationship while you're there. Uh, it can't begin when you leave. Uh, yeah, Tony. While, P- t- while you're there, you have to develop that. Tony Pinkard, president of Wilberforce, uh, 
this is the first person I heard him coin this phrase, so I don't I don't know, or I've, I've heard him say it. I don't know if it's his or not, but he said we should be careful about as careful tying a knot as we are in untying a knot. The relationships that you build, you are careful and meticulous and methodical. And when it is time for you to leave, ergo untie the knot, you should be careful about that. You shouldn't let your boss find out through the grapevine that you're interviewing somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. You shouldn't um, do things, talk bad about them or the space. You were a part of the space, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for some time. Um, they're just things that you need to do. And I, 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 that struck me or popped into my brain as you talked about the value of being able to have, um, you know, Dr. Beckley on the speed dial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think the other side of it is um, that I understand that Dr. Beckley is somebody who I would still need in my career. Mm. Um, even, even though he is retiring this year, uh, he's someone who's still tied to everybody in the higher education space, especially the, United Methodist higher education space. Yep. So he's someone that I that I want to be able to sit at his feet, even if I'm not working for him anymore. I want to be able to ask his thoughts and uh, ideas on things because there is a value, even though there are new ideas coming uh, coming around, even though there's new studies coming out, there's still value for being in a space for 30 or 40 years. <laughs> I don't know that there's, I mean, when you think about Beckley, you think about Hawkins, you think about Strickland, you think about Yancey, mm-hmm. you think about um, Hogan, <laughs> you you think about Irvin, you think about Jenkins, you think about Claude Perkins. When you think about all these guys who have labored in the vineyard for years and years and years, and you want to place no value on that, I don't want to be around you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> like it's it's Absolutely. hard it's hard enough to to survive. What first of all is a, a damn near miracle to get a job as a president of an HBCU, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. a huge blessing because it's only like ninety four, ninety five of these joints around. I know there's a hundred and four schools. Everybody want to say, but mm-hmm. you know, there's <laughs> but few of these here, and everybody seemingly wants it. So if a person mm-hmm. can get there. Um, I have the utmost respect for there. but no, 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 look, look, I'm a bifurcated. If you can just get there, even if you <laughs> flame out and get fired, I still have mm-hmm. respect for someone that can get there. But a Absolutely. person who can stay in the game for decades, man, if you, you just have to know that they have something because surely um, good luck ain't going to follow you for 30 years or 20 years mm-hmm. or 10 years for that mm-hmm. matter in this space. You, mm-hmm. You've you got to know something. And that's why I refer to them as libraries. You know, mm-hmm. when they retire, they still need to be um, walked into, sat down with and read, opened, mm-hmm. um, because there's great mm-hmm. information there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um couple more questions for you here before we cut across the field. Um, who who inspires you? Who are some of your mentors, man? I think I have, uh, I think I see those in two different groups. Um, but there are people like you and Dr. Faison and others who inspire me. Um, um, but uh, I guess when I think about mentors, um, and, and even though the, uh, I think I guess when I think about mentors, I think about people like Dr. Van Newkirk, uh, People like Don Manny Miller, who's a CFO at Russ, yeah. Dr. Beckley. I see those as uh, mentors, and uh, but I'm inspired by a number of uh, 
of college presidents, and even those who are not college presidents who um, have done well. And what I mean about well is those who uh, perform well in the position. Yeah, man, those it's who a really believe, who really believe in it. I'm sorry ton of brothers and sisters out there that are not presidents that I have in my Rolodex that I, mm-hmm. I lean on, you know, all the people mm-hmm. that came up through the ranks with me, man, there's some phenomenal people, but Van Newkirk, the more people I talk to, the more I realize that this dude has a huge imprint in this space, man. Mm-hmm. Dr. Newkirk is a, uh, talk about libraries. He's a library and, um, he's, um, been all around the place and, uh, Someone who can do sacks, raise money, and enroll students—that's that's a phenomenal. Uh, that's, that's a, a trifecta. That is that is yeah. a trifecta, brother. That is that uh-huh. is definitely a trifecta. What are some of the most invaluable lessons you've learned coming up um, on your trajectory, man? Um, outside of uh, being able to listen and know when to shut up, um, <laughs> I, I I think one is. Uh, Learning, um, I guess I talked about this earlier, learning how your area touches the other area, um, learning how to uh, um, how to uh, develop relationships, uh, that relationships matter, um, that uh, especially in the HBCU world, everybody knows everybody. Uh, so you have to be careful uh, in who you attach yourself to and who you estrange, your, who you estrange yourself from. Um, so I think those are the things that I would touch on. Um, what would you say about scholarship and research? How how important it is, is it for people to be uh, writing um, and um, presenting and or showing themselves to be a master of the subject that they're in by way of uh, being prepared? How How important is that? And what would you leave with with listeners about the importance of those things? I think it's ultimately important, uh, especially as a young professional, because that's one of the few ways that you can prove uh, or, or show others that, hey, I'm really serious about this space. I don't have the time invested in it, but I am learning more. I am trying to develop new thoughts about this space. I am researching and presenting my thoughts. I can uh, get those thoughts out of my head and uh, find data that supports them and uh, put it to paper. So I think there's a value for that. And I think it also allows you to meet others. Um, I think it allows you to connect with other people. And uh, I think the challenge is being open to criticism. So when you do the research, when you attend the conferences and present at the conferences, being open to someone challenging your thoughts, challenging the research and the data that you found, and not taking that personal, but taking it as an opportunity to learn from it as well. We started with the value of listening and we're ending with the value of listening. Right. That's that's what uh, being being um, receptive to criticism uh, dictates that you listen, not hear, Mm -hmm. but listen uh, to what folk have. Um, Man, this has been a this has been a blast, brother. I'm glad to know that um, you are walking in your space, walking in your destiny and doing what what you love to do. I I tell folks um, all the time that I have. Uh, the best job in the world. Like I'm literally Mm -hmm. getting paid to do nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, is that I could do what I'm doing. And even before I was, um, you know, in the space that I'm in, 
I could do it all day long. Like there was, there's mm. no gradation from, you know, office hours and, and off peak hours. Like I work all the time and I enjoy it. I mm-hmm. also enjoy family, but it's good to be around people who, who feel the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. I guess I have the second best job in the world. <laughs> well, no, you got the best brother. I mean, uh-huh. in, in your uh-huh. space, it, it is the best job. You know, I, whenever uh-huh. you get to that next place, it'll be, I think it's really about the career. And, and what I'm re- what I'm really saying is, is, you know, laboring in the vineyard of HBCUs, there's nothing mm-hmm. sweeter than that to me. Nothing. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions before we get out of here, man. Okay. The greatest fraternity born in 1911. Not yours, sir. <laughs> Omega Sci-Fi. <laughs> Omega Sci-Fi to the you, desert. Are you, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> Don't kick me off of the podcast. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jordans or Jays, one or ones. Ooh. I'm sorry, Jordans or Air Force Ones. Growing up listening to Nelly, I got to go with the Air Force Ones. <laughs> okay, damn millennials. Um, <laughs> the hat top. Yes. Okay, I got you. That's even rare. Um, uh, favorite dessert? Mm, uh, strawberry ice cream. Biggie or Tupac? Biggie, it was all a dream. <laughs> Jay Z or Nas? Ooh, uh, man, uh, that is tough. <laughs> uh, Jay Z. Lil Kim or Nicki Minaj? Kim, Lil Kim. Um, favorite gospel group? Mmm. Um, being from Mississippi, or, or just growing up in the church, everything takes me there. Um, but um, I guess Kurt Franklin and the family. Okay, I thought you were getting ready to say Mississippi Mass Choir. Nah, uh, <laughs> I'm still a millennial, doc. I'm yeah, still a millennial. W- but but you know what? I was talking to Stevie Lawrence yesterday, Doctor Stevie uh-huh. Lawrence, and mm-hmm. you know he if you know you know Doctor Lawrence, you know that that dude is a dresser. You know he is mm-hmm. a singer. You know he is. Um, a, a zealot for all things meticulous, right? And mm-hmm. and he loves gospel music. And one mm-hmm. of his favorite was, I, I believe, was Mississippi Mass. So we were, we were talking about oh, gospel choir. So so yeah. So it, it wasn't a bad thing for you to know that. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, let's see. Um, driving or flying? Mm. <laughs> uh, driving. Driving. Okay. Um, public or private? Ooh, if I answer wrong, yeah, I might get I'm not going to even, I'm not going to even do that to you, brother. <laughs> Scratch that, your honor. We, we, I moved to strike that. Um, last question for you, man. What, what is your, what is your hope for this space, man? For HBCU? Yes, sir. That we can really, um, be respected the way that we deserve to be respected, the way that we've earned to be respected. Um, I think we're respected among each other, but I think others uh, outside of the space sometimes don't understand the value of these institutions. And uh, when I talk to colleagues at other institutions, they say, well, our graduation rate is this and our retention rate is this. You know, anybody can do that with students who average a 25, 26 on the ACT. 
But when you take a student who may uh, who is a, a product of a, a failing public school system, and you get that student in a four to five, hopefully no longer than six years, and prepare that student to take over the world, that's an amazing feat that you've just accomplished. So yeah. uh, I think I hope that others can uh, uh, understand and know the value of HBCUs, and even if they don't, that we continue to be great. I can tell you this, my brother, if you keep applying that same pressure, that pressure that you you applied as as a freshman uh, all throughout your undergraduate career, you keep applying the same pressure that you applied to get to where you are now. Not only will they feel it, they will recognize it. And in a lot of ways, uh, they will honor it as though they did with the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. This has been a powerful session. Uh, this is the Four Thoughts of Our Founders podcast for the Higher Education Leadership. We had a really spe- leadership foundation. We had a really special guest, Dr. Barack Talley, who is the vice chancellor for student affairs or student engagement and enrollment management at um, the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, one of the phenomenal HBCUs uh, in the state of Arkansas. We're really happy to have him uh, be a part of our Who's Next series and believe that this brother's future is far brighter than his past. And it is a a bright past. Want to thank him and thank you all for listening. Want to remind you to be kind to each other. Keep God first and remember to join the loyalty programs get you some damn reward points and make your money work for you. (laughs) This is Herman Felton flying solo, the higher education leadership foundation. Peace out boy scouts.